Dieter, it's good to have you here. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, it's like it's the first time we've talked in forever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we. <laughs> We were gonna be. I was gonna have you on a month ago. Uh, then the whole world changed, and yeah. now we have more to talk about. And then we did record <laughs> for twenty minutes, and it didn't take. And now we have yeah. to start over. But it'll be well, good. Any, yeah, anything that you don't enjoy about the, the next twenty minutes that happens here, just assume that it was great the first time around. <laughs> um, and you're just, you know, you'll just have to imagine. Uh, anyway, there's three things I want to talk about and we do, they are new. It's like the world is, at least our world continues to go on. I want to talk about the iPhone, uh, the new iPhone, uh, SE. I want to talk about Mm -hmm. the iPad magic keyboard. Uh, and I want to talk about Android, the 20, the year 2020. So to date and Android flagships. Sure. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a handful of Call it three, eh, four, eh, three and a half. Call it three and a half. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you think they are because that obviously yeah. is. I, I obviously have a lot to say about the SE and the Magic Keyboard, and I personally don't have anything to say about the Android flagships, except that I find everything very interesting. And we'll get mm. to that. Let's do that as the third segment. Um, yeah. uh, but the iPad Magic Keyboard, I want to get to first. Um, I thought your review was really interesting uh, in a couple of ways. Um, but you, you're, so everybody, at least I, everybody I know who's in the review racket had the 12.9 inch to review. Yep. Yeah. Same. Uh, um, I, I bought the 11 inch. Uh, so I've got that now, but I, I reviewed it on the 12.9, um, which maybe colored a little bit of my feeling about it because since I, I prefer the 11 inch iPad in the first place, uh, the 12.9 just feels big. That's sort of why I, I focused on like, here are the exact weight measurements. Um, and I did it, I did it in pounds cause I've mostly got a U.S. audience and I know that's awful. I should have just offered grams also, but I was in a hurry. Um, but yeah, it's heavy. Um, and I think that Apple knew it was heavy from the jump. In fact, I know they knew it was heavy because I asked mm. them, Hey, how much does the 11 inch one weigh? Because I'm weighing this 12 inch one. It seems kind of heavy. Can you just, you know, let me know what the spec is. And they just told me that there's nothing to share on that. I thought that was so interesting too, in advance, even before we got the 12.9 inch, they didn't have the weights for any of them. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, they, they had it, they, 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 I'm sure that somebody somewhere with an Apple had waited at some Oh, point. yeah, they knew it. But I'm saying <laughs> yeah. that there was, no, there was no way to go to, like, if you go to apple.com and click on iPad, and then they're like, yeah. they're like, iPad keyboards, and they have this nice page with all of the latest iPad keyboards. And there's nowhere there that tells you how much any of them weigh. Um, and Dr. Drang, the, the pseudonymous, uh, lovely... Apple blogger uh, mm-hmm. stuff. I just I, I, I gobble up. I love every almost everything he posts. Uh, had speculated on the weights based on well, let's take we know the weights of the smart keyboards and we know the shipping weights and somehow it was like Amazon published the shipping weights for the Magic keyboards. You know, like okay. how much the whole package is. So if we take them as a percentage, we could you know. And his guess for the twelve point nine inch was very close, but. It mm. turns out the 11 inch magic keyboard is quite a bit heavier than his guess. It's, it, it, it does seem, because it, it's it, percentage wise, the 11 inch magic keyboard, the new thing with the clicking keys and the, you know, the, uh, the trackpad yeah. is a weighs closer to the 12.9 inch than the smart keyboard do. 
You know, you, do you, do you, yeah. does that make sense? And I, yeah. I guess it's something to the effect of, and I don't know that anybody's torn these things apart yet, but I'm guessing that there's aspects of them where the difference in size doesn't matter, that there's like hinge mechanisms for both hinges that the, the difference in size doesn't really matter so much as the fact that the hinge is there at all. And it's, it's, you know, I guess the trackpads weigh about the same, even though it's only mm. slightly smaller, etc. So the 11 inches is, is quite a bit heavier. I, I don't know why Apple hit it though. I mean, it is what it is. Just you know, uh, just just be proud of it. I, I don't know. It just was suspicious, but it made me think. Yeah, maybe we are guessing low on the weights of these things. Yeah, I mean, maybe they just they knew that everybody would dunk on it. I mean, I know that the day before or the morning of. The reviews coming out, uh, some of the keyboards had actually shipped early. Yeah. And so everyone saw that it weighs the 12.9 with the keyboard weighs more than a MacBook Air, um, but weighs about the same as like a 13 inch MacBook yeah. Pro. And so I was like, oh my God, it's so heavy. Um, and so I think they, they knew that that was going to be the reaction probably, but um, I, I agree with you. I think they should have just owned it. Just be like, yep, we made the, the best keyboard we could. And that meant that it weighs a little bit more. Uh, but the iPad, you know, Apple has is very good at pivoting, but the iPad is the greatest portable device ever. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. You know, I think they could have pulled off some sort of jujitsu on the messaging there. There's a there's a great line. I love the uh, the writing book, Strunk and White, uh, the elements of style. Mm-hmm. Um, and as somebody who <laughs> longtime listeners of this show know well, I <laughs> I've forty seven years old, but I've internalized a lot of words I pronounced the wrong way because I read them as a kid and I took a guess as to how they were pronounced. And in my brain, they're, they're just stuck that way. Um, and there's a line in that book where Strunk, the, the old professor who was at E.B. White's English professor at whatever college he went to, his advice to his students was, if you're reading out loud and you get to a word you don't know how to pronounce, say it loud. <laughs> Don't, you know, instead of mumbling it, if you don't know how to pronounce a word, say it loud. And I kind of feel like, all right, you're not proud of how much the Magic Keyboards weigh. Well, put the weight out there and be proud of it. You know, just, you know, hang it out there. Um, But anyway, bottom line, the the big thing for me, my only regret with my, my review of the iPad Magic Keyboard is that I didn't put the review out specifically as a review of the 12.9 inch magic iPad magic keyboard mm-hmm. because now that I have the 11 inch 2 for my personal iPad Pro which is 11 inch which size I personally much prefer too um I find that they they're different enough more different than I expected and different enough that they they kind of demand to be reviewed as separate products or at least yeah. like one and a half different products. Like it's like half the same and half different. So this is really fascinating to me because I, I use so many different sized keyboards in my life. Cause I, I try and make sure that I'm switching platforms regularly enough where I feel like I'm familiar with everything that, um, the, like just from like hand feel, maybe I'm like I'm numb to like major differences in like keys and keyboards because the eleven feels about the same to me as a twelve. It's just smaller. 
For me, it's the it's not so much about the keyboard being smaller because I'm mm. used to smaller mini keyboards too, including some that are truly, truly micro, like ones that are like little fold up ones that you're supposed to use with a phone, which yeah. I don't really do anymore. But it was sort of like a dream of mine to like, and still maybe someday I'll you know i'll find a device that'll let me do it but i've always thought it would be cool to go on vacation or or just go like on a remember when we used to have meetings and stuff <laughs> like if i had yeah. like if i had like a apple briefing or you know some kind of product demo from some company in new york to take the train to new york and take nothing but my phone and a little fold-up keyboard and do all of my work just with that and not have to worry about even taking an ipad along um so the fact that the the A to Z alphabet keys are smaller, I don't know what percentage. Let's say it's like ninety percent layout. Um, I'm fine with that, and my fingers yeah. are, are used to that over the years. I wouldn't want to write uh, as much, you know. Like the the thing about the twelve point nine inch keyboard is it is a full keyboard, right? Like yeah. I I if I were going to write a book, I would wouldn't hesitate to do all of the typing on that iPad keyboard. You know, it's it is as full size of a keyboard as Apple's desktop Bluetooth Magic Keyboard or their laptop, the MacBook ones. It's full size. The keys feel just as good. Maybe different, you know, in certain yeah. niggling ways. But the the smaller 11 inch one is definitely a slightly smaller layout. I wouldn't want to do as much typing on it if I had another option, but I could. Yeah. My complaints, or not even complaints, but the some of the differences is that some of the other keys are hard to type. Like I find it insane, absolutely insane, that the right or left square bracket key is a full size key, and the right one is a half size key, even though they're a pair. Like I, I, I think that's insane. I don't know how, I don't know how that passed design muster at, at Apple. It, it just seems crazy to me, especially when there's a there's a, a backslash key next to it. You could make that one full size and then make the two bracket keys half size, it's just to make them the same. They they whatever size you make the bracket keys, they should obviously be the same. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean how like how often are you using one without the other? Right, right? like you're you're <laughs> yeah you're if you are you're like leaving your brackets hanging. Yeah. Uh, I find that crazy. And then today I linked to Dan Morin had a review of the Logitech keyboard that they announced alongside these. It's called the Touch Something. The Logitech Touch Something, I think is the official yeah. name. <laughs> anyway, he had a review of that. That's Logitech's product designed in conjunction with Apple for the non-pro iPads so that there's a cover slash keyboard case with an integrated trackpad that connects right. to those iPad smart connectors. Um, anyway, looking at the pictures of that, the way they did it is they made the two square brackets and the backslash key, uh, like two thirds, all three of those keys are the same width. And instead mm. of half and full, they're all like two thirds size. Well, that's a good compromise. Two thirds is a pretty good, pretty good compromise. And then the other key that really is really driving me nuts trying to type it is the dash key another or hyphen i don't know what you call it but yeah. it's the key next to zero in between zero and equals and it's a half size key on the 11 inch ipad magic keyboard and i keep missing it because it's so small yeah 
This I noticed because I um I'm actually one of the worst people for just using m dashes in lieu of like actual punctuation or other punctuation. <laughs> I'm right there with um, you. <laughs> yeah, Chris Chris Welch, one of our one of our reporters, just yells at me every time. Every time he edits one of my pieces, he just just deletes everything. It's that, and then I, I have to stop using the word pretty. Those are the the mm. two things that I need to cut out of my life. So I looked, and and on the Logitech keyboard, what they did, and I think this is pretty clever. I maybe there's other smaller footprint keyboards that do this, and from and probably there are over the mm-hmm. years. I've never really noticed it, but I'm like, well, wait, how is that keyboard, which is for 10.5 inch iPads, so therefore in theory, perhaps even le- more space constrained? How do they have a full width hyphen key and an equals key? And the the trick is, if you squint and look at it, the whole number row on that keyboard is slightly smaller in width than the Mm. alphabet keys. So the one, two, three, four, five, six, dot, 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 all the way across there, they're like, I don't know, I didn't take out like Photoshop and try to measure them, but they look like they're all maybe like 85% of the alphabet keys and so like one two and three align with qwe as you'd expect but by the time you get to eight nine and zero they're a little bit further to the left of the alphabet keys underneath them than you're used to but then that makes room for dash and equals keys that are the same width as those other number keys that seems like since you have to make compromises to get a smaller footprint keyboard those seem like better compromises than what apple's made oh for sure um i mean i i would even be willing to have the the backspace key be even a little bit smaller because it's you know it's like fits law but for yeah. key, like you can you can reach out there and hit it and if it's a little bit smaller there it's it's less of a pain than than the the hyphen key being smaller yeah because you can it's it is i think it i think it actually is fitz's law i don't think fitz's law only applies to software i think you could oh there it is you you can just reach up to the corner right and just blindly go for the corner and if you overshoot you're not going to hit the wrong key you're going to be off the side or over the top of the delete key you can hit it Um, although on the on the it's called the logitech combo touch apparently on the logitech combo touch you if you reach over you will hit the function row which Uh, they have well we'll have to talk about that in a moment but (laughs) um but the other thing i've noticed with the 11 inch magic keyboard uh compared to the Mm 12.9 inch is that the magnets are a little different it doesn't seem to me as strong a magnetic connection yeah um it's easier to take off, which is good when you want to take it off, but it also seems like it's not quite as secure, which maybe isn't as good if you're going to use it on a bumpy train or something. Now, the thing I don't know is I I, I, I do I notice the same thing where it comes off a little bit more easily, um, but I don't I'm using my with the 2018 iPad Pro the 11 inch, so which you know are compatible. So I wonder if I had. A 2020 11 inch iPad Pro, if it has stronger magnets in it, I kind of doubt it, um, but it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. I can't compare 11 inch 2018 to 2020 because I don't have a 2020 11 inch, but I can compare the 12.9 inch for both years because oh, okay. I have uh, my wife owns the 2018 uh, 12.9 inch iPad Pro. Yeah. And my testing with that was that it was magnetically identical. It was, okay. it was, I mean, now I didn't measure it in any way with any kind of tool, but just anecdotally, it just seemed equally strong uh, 
exactly the same magnetically as the new one. So right. I don't know. I can't say that the 11 inch is the same way, but it's definitely a different thing for me going between the 12.9 and the 11 inch. It's just, and, and I don't think, again, that's the sort of thing I regret about my review. Like, cause I really went on and on about how man- magnetically strong it was. And mm-hmm. it's not that it, uh, it is, but it is only for the 12.9. So I wish I had emphasized right. that. Well, so one thing, um, and maybe we'll get into this later, but one of the things that's nice about the um, this keyboard, and it sort of applies to smart keyboard, not not quite as much, is um, you can pick it up and walk around with it in a mm-hmm. way that, like, with a Surface Pro, to pick up a Surface Pro with the keyboard attached is kind of this weird floppy mess, yeah. right? You got to like fold it up. But this thing, you can like you can pick it up and like hold it in one hand and sort of you know walk around your your house or your apartment with it in a way that um, like with this Logitech keyboard, you can't. You know, it's because it's gonna it's gonna flop around. So I really think that the magnets being strong, uh, maybe a little bit less strong on the eleven. I don't know, but the the thing was designed. I don't know. It feels like it was designed for my home instead of like my backpack. And that gets to the weight thing. Yeah. But it also just, it gets to like, I feel like maybe you wrote this. It feels more like a dock than it does a case. Yeah. I did write that. And I do yeah. think that it's, it's like a case. It's a, it's a dock that folds up into a case sized wrapper, not a case with a keyboard that you can type on. Right. Um, yeah. I even turned it upside down. I mean, I was, you know, I'm not reckless with review units, but I am ever so slightly more reckless than I am with the ones I've paid for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, I'm not one, <laughs> like, if they say that, you know, uh, here's a review unit of a new iPhone, it's IP68 water resistant. I don't dunk it in water. I just let other reviewers do it because I don't want to be the one who shorts one out. And then it's not because I, you know, Hey, you're the ones who said it was water resistant. I, it's not that I'm afraid to call Apple up and say that I don't want to lose 24 hours to get a new review unit though, to do it. So I don't, so I'm a little bit cautious, but I took the 12.9 inch in the keyboard and turned it upside down. And it's mm-hmm. like, it doesn't come out. And the hinge, I'm not going to say the hinge doesn't move at all, but it it stays pretty close to the same angle. It certainly doesn't bend. You know, if it adjusts a, a degree or two, sure, yeah. that's gravity. But you can, like, turn it upside down and it doesn't come out. I'm not sure I would do that with the 11-inch. And I definitely wouldn't do any of that with Apple's smart keyboard. Oh yeah, no, that thing, that thing pops off really right. easily. Uh, and you can definitely, you know, I mean, is it, rec- is it ever truly advisable to walk around your house with a laptop of any kind? Probably not, <laughs> but we do it, right? Yeah. I, I mean, everybody does it. Uh, and you can definitely do that with the magic keyboard. It's, it's definitely much more stable than you would think, especially given how similar it looks externally, like from the bottom and top Fab or not fabric, whatever you call that rubbery material they make these. It's things weird, out. right? And it's like it it picks up just dust in a weird way. It it there's something about that material that I'm just not a big fan of. It's grippy, so I'll give them that. Yeah, but it's it's grippy in a way that like it doesn't like you know how some plastic. Uh, I, I don't know. I've used a bunch of random keyboard cases and stuff. Like it's grippy, but then it like starts to feel like weird and greasy. Yeah, this that never happens to this really. Um, but it. I don't know. It it definitely feels like it's it's some sort of you know custom polyurethane, probably something something plastic that they really believe in because it's grippy and means it won't slip off a I don't know an airplane table t- 
airplane tray table. Right. Um, but I'm not a big fan of it. It, uh, it, it, it does. It has two problems that I, I've seen. It's one, it definitely picks up dust or dust sticks to it in ways that it, it just seems prone to it. And yeah. I think it picks up like finger and palm grease in a and it cleans easily like so yeah. it, it it's not like permanent shiny spots like like I know what you're talking about there are some things that pick up permanent shiny spots they're not permanent but I'm I've been using it in pretty clean areas not really eating around it or you know eating like mm-hmm. you know like a hot dog or something and you know with my finger like eating chicken wings and then touching it <laughs> uh but yet I still have grease spots on it, you know, it, or for lack of a better term. And then, you know, I, I wipe them off and they clean off. But like with all of Apple's aluminum MacBooks, I never feel like, you know, they, they, I never feel like I have to clean them every day. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I'm not a fan of this material either. I, I didn't really get into that in my review, but it's like I don't hate it. I don't know. It, it's just so unusual. It almost like it's almost like somebody needs to write a review of this material. Yeah, <laughs> because it's, well, it's it's like nothing else. I don't know what to compare it to. Yeah, it's very strange. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't know. It bothers me more on the outside, which uh, honestly I never really see because right. the thing sits on sits on my desk. Like I never take it off my desk. I I now I'm taking the iPad off of it and using the iPad just all by itself without a case on it. Way more than I have in the past. Like, I kid you not, like three, four years. Like, I don't, I don't know if I've ever used an iPad this much outside of a case as I do now that I basically have a dock that I can just attach it to to charge and then take it off to go walk around my house with it. See, I'm the opposite where I just haven't used it in any sort of case for years because I so mm-hmm. dislike the smart keyboard. And so I've used a keyboard with my iPad, but I have been using for years just like regular desktop Bluetooth keyboards and then propping up my iPad in a standalone little tiny little tripod stand. And so it's, right. it's even easier to pick it up and just walk around with it as, you know, iPad as a tablet. But that's what I like so much about this case is it's so easy to get it out and just do that. Like, oh, I just want to read some comic books at night. And I don't want, certainly don't want to have a bulky keyboard case folded around the back to do that. It's so easy to just take it out and walk around. But that's the thing that makes it so weird that I seem to get like greasy spots or on it because I'm not even moving it. It's like at the same, (laughs) I, it, I, I wipe it down, put it on the kitchen counter at my spot and leave it folded open. And then I go to like weigh it or something or, you know, do something. You know, somebody, I pick it up for some reason and look at it. I'm like, well, how yeah. did it get so dirty? I haven't even moved it. <laughs> you got ghosts. Yeah. All right. Yeah. F keys. We got to talk about the F keys. So I, I think they should have included function keys. Um, I think that having, you know, even the iPad equivalent, so like a home button, a multitasking button, play, pause, next, last, volume, keyboard brightness. Um, it is just way more convenient to just reach up and hit a function key than it is to reach all the way up to the control center or try and hit that tiny little target with the trackpad to to start adjusting those things. Um, and they're, you know, they didn't put it in, obviously, and I, they didn't have it in their previous keyboard. So part of it is I don't think Apple believes in function rows for iPads. Um, but part of it is I, I just 
the, they decided they wanted a you know keyboard dock that had a rock solid base that had this floating screen, um, and I think it, there's reasons for that that make sense. But it just meant that there was even if they physically wanted to, it would have been awkward to fit the function row in. Yeah, depending on the angle, you know, the, the angle yeah. that the screen. If you have it at an acute enough angle, like closer to ninety, then there would be room for them. But when it's at its widest position, you'd kind of have to. Yeah. F- it's like fitting your fingers into a slot, you know. <laughs> like sneaking in there, yeah, yeah, and you know you get it with the backlighting. But you know, speaking of backlighting, that's the key. Everybody who mentions this, and it's a good point, is that if you want to adjust the backlighting, it's the only way to do it right now is to go to the settings app. Uh, settings general. Let me see if I can even remember settings. Yeah, it's settings general settings keyboard keyboard. No key- hardware keyboard. Yeah, hardware keyboard. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and then backlighting. Yeah, uh, and that is. I mean, you made the point in your review that the, their default settings for the backlight are excellent. Yeah, they're great as long as you as long as you want the backlight there. It's always correct. I've never had to adjust it if I want the backlight on. But the the, the thing about the iPad that I love is that it you do more than just use it like a laptop. Right. You, you watch movies on it. You read. You do other things and. Um, sometimes you want to have the thing propped up with some kind of stand, like this is a perfectly good stand, and you don't want the keys lit up. Right. And in order to do that, you got to like hunt through the settings, or you got to follow Frederico Vitici on Twitter and find a shortcut app. Um, you know, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, and so my, you know, there's no way they're going to retroactively add backlight keys, hardware keys to this keyboard because mm-hmm. a keyboard doesn't get software updates that enable new keys. But so the best we can hope for is getting the backlighting into the uh, control center. Yeah, well, and there's a perfectly obvious obvious place to, to do it, which is under like a long press of the brightness in the same yeah. way. And because yeah. logically, you long press the volume, and then you get to your AirPod extra settings. So you should long press the brightness and get to the, your keyboard brightness settings. Um, I was excited because everybody, you know, a lot of people observed this and had it. I I had the 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 thought, hey, let's see if Siri can do this, and I, I asked. Siri to adjust the keyboard backlighting uh-huh. and then it came up with a brightness slider on screen and I was like bingo there it is I can't wait to publish this tip and I like went to try it and as I slid it down it was my display brightness <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I can't even say that that's you know it would be good to add it to Siri too so you could just say turn the key you know it would be nice as a shortcut to yeah. tell Siri to turn the keyboard backlighting off and have the right thing happen um and i guess it's not a bad guess to just well here's the only brightness i know how to show you i'll show it to you i guess i can't complain about not understanding but it, it was a disappointment um the other thing is that because there's no row of f keys there's no escape key and we right. kind of went through this with the MacBooks, where the MacBooks that first shipped with the touch bar didn't have a hardware escape key. And now with the new one, starting with the 16-inch MacBook Pro, um, they even made it a bullet point. It's like a selling point of what's so great about the updated keyboard in the 16-inch MacBook Pro is it has an escape key. And Yay. it's so cool to see Apple <laughs> putting that in as a bullet point. Um you know, and again, with my my person, I know there's people. I know that there's it, this one is 
polarizing, but I like the upside down T for the arrow keys too. And mm. I'm glad to see them, you know, making it a selling point. But there is no F key row, and so there is no escape key. And but you get to remap it. You can say, "What do you do?" Caps lock. Yeah. So uh, every computer that I own, uh, I remap caps lock to some kind of universal search. So on my Mac, it goes to Alfred. On Windows, um, I have on Windows. I actually have it open up a new uh, uh, Edge browser tab. Mm. Um, on Chrome OS, it's a new Chrome tab. Uh, but uh, you can't remap the caps lock key on the iPad to that. So I remap it to escape because I, I'm so used to hitting the caps lock key to do a search that if I left it on as caps lock, I would end up typing in all caps all the time. <laughs> so you might as well have it mapped to something. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I have it set to the globe. I have escape mapped to the globe hardware key because I don't, okay. I don't, it, the only thing the globe does by default is toggle between the hardware keyboard and this on-screen emoji keyboard, and you can type control space to do the same thing. And I right. kind of that comes naturally to me because on the Mac you type control command space to get the the emoji picker. Um, so that comes naturally to me. So I might as well remap the globe to escape, and it somehow feels okay mentally. I mean, I could do it if if I couldn't do the globe, if only caps lock. I I would just do caps lock because I don't. Who uses caps lock? Right, I mean, yeah, I, don't know. I mean, I guess there's some angry, <laughs> angry people on the internet who really, really make use of it. But yeah, I figure if you're gonna if you're gonna use caps lock to yell, you should you should be forced to use the shift key, and like you really mean yeah. it, like the physical effort of typing the capital letters should be more work. You should, but I feel like the people who use it would have would have none of it. Um, yeah. It is nice. I guess it's not surprising. I mean, and I know it's, you know, it's all software at some point, but it is nice that yeah. if you remap the caps lock key, the green light no longer goes on and off every other yeah. invocation. The green light is tied to the idea that caps lock is caps lock. So that's yeah. cool. Um, um Oh, actually, if you are a Mac user, they finally added in Catalina the ability to natively remap the caps lock key on Macs without having to use a third-party software like Carabiner Elements. Mm. So that's great. And it also does the same thing where if you remap it natively, it doesn't turn on the, the green light. Yeah. So that's cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you think of the trackpad? Because uh, I, you know, I like I, I mentioned in my review. I use uh, I've used the Surface Pro a lot, and so like this trackpad is almost identical in size, and so um, it is. It, I'm used to having small trackpads every now and then. Um, but if you're used to a trackpad on a MacBook, or used to like a you know the trackpad on like an iMac or something, those things are massive. Yeah. So I'm wondering what it's like to go down to such a tiny trackpad for you. All right. I. I I like it a lot, and I like it a mm -hmm. lot more. It makes me wonder why they're so big. I know that that now that the MacBook Pro keyboards in or trackpads in particular have gotten truly expansive. I um, mean, yeah. I, I joke that it's like the sixteen inch one is the size of a New York studio apartment. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I I know that there have been others who say they're too big, and I know there are some people who who get problems with their palms registering as false touches because they're so big. And I don't run mm -hmm. into that for some 
physiological reason about the skin on my palms. I've I, I've been using a 16-inch MacBook Pro extensively over the last few months, and I I really don't have any problems with it being so big in terms of getting false touches. But on the other hand, now that I, I I'm getting by just fine with this comparatively tiny little trackpad. I'm like, I don't know why that's so big. The one thing that it seems like I run into the size problems is if I do try dragging and dropping something, I run out of space. But on the other hand, I don't drag and drop on iPad much. I, I just don't think it's as much of a thing as it is on the Mac. It's it. It, I use it much more for just moving the pointer around, and it's big enough, even up and down, it's big enough, and for scrolling. And for scrolling, you just keep flicking. So it, you know, it's not so much going in one continuous movement where you need the size. You just keep flicking two fingers to scroll, and so it's fine. I, I, I like yeah. it a lot. I think, I think it's, I want to know how, what the black magic is that they've made it equally clickable at the top and bottom instead of the diving board effect of all the old you know because it doesn't use haptic feedback to fake clicks it really clicks but in the before apple had these haptic magic trackpads in the macbooks they were these diving board buttons that were way clickier at the bottom than they were at the top. And I don't understand why, if they were able to do this, how come they weren't doing it all along? Yeah, I don't know. The the Surface Trackpad is, is a dive, diving board again. But the, the at first, I was like, oh, they, they, they did the, the haptic thing. This is great. And then I realized, oh, no, it is, it's actually a full-on button uh, all the way top to bottom. You are actually, like, pushing a thing down, and it's clicking. Um, it's really good. Uh, I've, I'm really impressed with it. I've never used a trackpad of this size that that felt this good. I mean, I think the only thing that I lose from going down to a smaller trackpad is um I finally started using like the the like the pinch out pinch in gestures on the Mac to like yeah. go to your desktop or um I'm actually using the launch pad or launch center whatever the app launcher yeah. is for once. Um I haven't I didn't use it for years and then all of a sudden since I started using it to go to my desktop I was like, "Oh yeah, this thing is here. I'll start clicking on this again." And I kind of like it. It's weird. And you find that the pinch, there's not enough room to pinch? Yeah, I think that, I mean, but you don't need to on the iPad because you can do that sort of three-finger hold or three-finger swipe up, uh, and it works pretty well. Um, I agree with you on dragging. It's If you want to drag something across, it's pretty tough. But since I'm using the 11-inch most of the time anyway, like, you never have that far to drag. Um, So really, like, my only problem with the trackpad is stuff that's, kind of out of Apple's control. It's just like you never really know inside an app what the tra- if the trackpad is going to do exactly what you expect it to. And I, I've complained about Google's apps in this regard, um, although Google's apps are just terrible on the iPad to begin with. Uh, but even weird stuff like if you if you use Twitter, uh, the official Twitter app, right. like some of, some of the buttons, the iPad like does the little lock-on thing like the Apple TV and it does, you know, it like turns into the shape of the button. Right. And it's really neat. And then other buttons just, nope, it's just like it feels very weird and unnatural inside a single app where sometimes the mouse does the magical resize thing and sometimes it just stays that little circle. Yeah, and I guess I, I without knowing the, you know, you'd have to, talk to the developers and you know app by app but i'm guessing it's some kind of thing where if you have a button and it's derived from an, a standard ui kit button without overriding certain things you get this magical the 
the cursor morphs into an outline around the button mm-hmm. automatically. And for other things that are buttons, and up until now when you just tap them with your finger, act just like buttons and there's no reason to think of them any differently, they somehow don't inherit that for free. And it, again, yeah, you're right. Tip. And you're right, though, that even within the same apps, it, it, you can't really guess until you hover the, the mouse pointer over it, whether it's going to do it or not. Yeah. Uh, but there are other like in control center. So you, to bring control, you like, you sort of, you drag the, the mouse pat beyond the edge of the screen. And that's what brings in your slide over or your dock or whatever. It took me a while to sort of get used to that feeling of just keep, keep moving your finger up and it'll eventually come down. Um, so that's neat once you get used to it. But, um, I love, I don't know why this gets to me, but I love when you hover the mouse over the volume or brightness slider. You don't need to do anything other than just when you do a two finger scroll on those sliders, it it directly adjusts the volume. It's, it's so obvious and it's tiny and it's not that big a deal, but it's just, that's like a small considered thing. Whereas I, if they had made you like click and drag, I wouldn't have been surprised, but instead they just got it right. It's it's good. I I really this the the existence of this trackpad support and and it is to me it the software support for the trackpad is the bigger deal because I've been ever since iOS iPad OS I I'm always going to call it iOS but ever since iPad OS 13.4 shipped with this trackpad support last month I've been using my iPad so much more not just because I need to use it to be able to write about it but i just like ah finally i feel like i'm text editing without thinking you know and and i just feel like now i'm using my fingers instead of having mittens on my hands and and feeling so constrained when i'm trying to just edit text um and doing it in this integrated magic keyboard that it snaps into is is great um you know, the funny thing about tech stuff is um, I tried really hard to, like, wrap my head around the way that iPadOS handled cursor and text selection and copy and paste. And there's, like, the new three-finger tap stuff. Um, and I was like, all right, it's, I don't want to say it's me. I don't want to say I'm just a fuddy-duddy and I'm stuck in my old ways. Uh, that, that Maybe, like, I can really learn how this new text selection stuff works. And I never really got there. Uh, and I'm still not quite there. And it's really, really obvious to me now that all of the cr- way the cursor stuff works in iPad OS was designed for the touchpad. And then they're like, well, we also need to make it work for a touch first experience. So right. let's try and, you know, throw some machine learning at it and see if it works. Um, and I just, I think, it, I feel like it's honestly a step backwards if you don't have a, a, tr- a touchpad attached uh, to the the magnifying glass where it was still awkward and like had lots of extra steps, but at least it was precise and it was completely predictable. I feel like right now without the trackpad attached, m- interacting with text is a little bit unpredictable. And that is a thing that text interaction should never be. Yeah. And I know that there are people uh, both outside Apple and I happen to know inside Apple that there are people who, I don't know that anybody is flat out like opposed to this trackpad support system wide, but there Mm. are people who, unlike me, who just love it, who are ambivalent about it on the grounds that it's it's taken away their motivation to finally get a purely on-screen touch interface for selecting text right, which I don't right. think they've ever gotten for the phone or the iPad. 
selecting text has always been fiddly. And I'm with you that I feel like getting a getting rid of the magnifying glass was actually a step backward. I, I think they made it slightly worse. It feels like I'm less precise than I was before. And it certainly isn't better. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea was they they were hoping that, you know, they could use some machine learning to sort of like just fudge it, just figure it out for you. Um, and it just, it, it can't, it can't quite do that. Yeah. Um, um, so the other thing we have to talk about is your comparison as, as somebody who owns the Surface Pro X. Yeah. And, you know, clearly the biggest differences between Microsoft and Apple is how do you pronounce the letter X? Is it, a, <laughs> is it an X or is it a 10? It is an X, uh, but I, I had to ask, and they're like, of course it's X. It's like, okay, what does X mean? Right. You know, it means X. Okay, great. Uh, and then we get to minor, minor differences, you know, like whether to integrate a kickstand into the tablet or not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so look, the the funny th- so the Surface, when it first came out, Surface Pro, like it, it introduced this, they introduced this idea of uh, lapability, which is just a hilarious word, but it People were concerned that, like, could you fit the surface on your lap? Could you fit on an airplane tray table? Um, and you can, but it's just a little bit awkward. Um, but it's because they have this idea of a kickstand. And I, on the whole, I tend to prefer the setup on the Surface Pro because I really do use that sort of, like, I don't know what mode to call it, like the portrait mode where, like, there's no keyboard, but it's still able to stand up on its own. And with the Surface, you could either do that with the keyboard attached or just flip the keyboard around behind it. The other thing that you can do with it is because that kickstand goes all the way to almost flat, is if you draw a lot, you can you know put the thing down at a really comfortable drawing angle. Um, now, you can do all these things with an iPad with like the original sort of origami smart cover. It has like, you can put it sideways or you can stand it up or whatever. Um, but ever since they did the smart keyboard and now with this thing, um, it really, really wants to have the iPad be at that sort of laptop angle, and it really fights you if you want to do. You can't really, you, you can't do any other angle. So you kind of need to take the thing out, and then if you want to prop it up in some way, you're sort of on your own. Um, and is a kickstand inelegant to have on a physical piece of hardware? Yes, it is. But um, it's it's so functional for me to be able to just like you know, set the thing down in bed and like start a movie or, you know, if I do want to draw, which I do not do much, you can like bend the thing down that for me, the trade-off is worth it. Well, I mean, in the kickstand's favor too, you always have a way to stand it up. You, you're never without it. You're not, Oh, I forgot to take my little, you know, $10 tripod thing. That's just to prop it up so that I can watch a movie. You know, I forgot to put it in my bag. Now, how am I going to prop this thing up? Um, the drawing thing is interesting too. I mean, it's it's it is very very clear that the iPad Magic Keyboard is only meant to be used in iPad or laptop angles. You know, yeah. And Apple says ninety to one thirty. The one thirty is the maximum open angle. You can actually open it less than ninety. You can you know it it it, yeah. <laughs> it stays where it is at like eighty to seventy five degrees. It's just that there's no. They don't even advertise that as a feature because it's almost who would, never. Yeah, who would want that? Yeah, who would want that? Yeah. Um, I do find I, I'm not a illustrator, so I don't really draw much. I do find that it's a little bit. I have a pencil though, and I do write notes with my iPad. Mm-hmm. I find that it's easier to write on the screen than I expected 
while it's in the magic keyboard, but I, I will admit that I wouldn't want to write extensively, you know, but it's yeah. not super awkward. And then I thought about it. I was like, well, people write on whiteboards at a 90 degree angle all the time. And I know that ergonomically something that's uh, while you're standing up writing at something, you know, chest high is di- a lot different ergonomically than writing on a laptop screen, but it's not mm-hmm. ridiculous. And if it's literally on your lap, laptop, as a laptop, like in some kind of any kind of scenario where you actually have it on your lap, your lap can, depending on how you sit and your posture, you can have it fade away from you, slope away from you. So you can yeah. kind of get the iPad and a magic keyboard at a more amenable angle to drawing or scribbling or putting notes. And because it's so, the hinges are so strong and the magnetic connection is so strong, it, it, I, I, I feel like you could do it securely. So I don't feel like it's preventing you from using your Apple pencil while it's connected. It's just, it's certainly not ideal though, compared to something that can fold all the way around. Yeah. And like the whole question is like, is, is the kickstand worth it? Or, and this is, I tried to, I didn't, do this really elegantly, but like there's nothing essential about the shape of the iPad or the shape of the magic keyboard. Like Apple could have chosen other things. So the bridge keyboard, for example, it, it is a proper laptop and it has these like really, really strong like clips. Yeah. And so it, it, when it's all put together, it feels fine, but getting the iPad in and out of it's really awkward. And so like, that's pretty inelegant. Uh, there are other ways they could have chosen to like construct this thing as a physical object that might've solved some of these problems, but it would have ended up with trade-offs. And it's really clear to me that the number one thing they wanted to do with this design was make a good keyboard and everything else drawing, watching it on a movie on it, whatever else you might want to do was secondary to let's have a, a big, flat, solid metal base so that it feels rock solid, and then let's put a really good magic keyboard on it. Um, and that's like that's that's what it's for. Um, and that then everything else had to wait after that. So here's another thing, and it's like sort of unfortunate timing for Apple that this thing came out in the midst of this pandemic that has everybody doing 10 times or more video conferences than they've ever done before. Uh, yeah. I, you know, the camera, I mean, famously, uh, Joanna Stern just did a whole video about how terrible laptop cameras are and the new MacBook air camera in particular. And that saying that it's 720p resolution doesn't even get to how bad it is in low light. It has nothing to do with yeah. resolution. It's just bad. And iPads have really good FaceTime cameras, the front-facing camera. And so, like, if you're just going to do a FaceTime or a Zoom call, you're going to get a much better picture quality of yourself from an iPad than you are from any MacBook. Yeah. But it's over on the side. <laughs> and so well, you've, it really exacerbates this sort of, I don't know, you just look, you're, you're looking right at it, you're fully engaged, and it looks like you're like reading email or Twitter off on the side because your eyes yeah. are way off center. And if you decide you do want to read email or Twitter off the side, uh, most video conferencing apps, especially Zoom, I think all of them actually, uh, completely narc on you by turning off your video because the iPad is super secure and any app right, that isn't right. the frontmost is not allowed to have the camera lit up. Right. <laughs> I didn't even think about that aspect, but yeah. Yeah. It's a huge hassle. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've <laughs> I've been trying to spy on my son who's in tenth grade doing quote unquote Zoom school and yeah. they it seems like they pay attention, but there is absolutely a back channel. <laughs> oh yeah. For sure. <laughs> I've said this, like they've straightened it out. They it was like day one, day one of Zoom school, they got a Zoom bomber and uh, Oh yeah. And the back channel went crazy. The one kid photoshopped like a wanted poster for the guy. <laughs> and he didn't do anything. He didn't speak up. He didn't do anything inappropriate. He didn't like, yeah. you know, put any porno into the video. He just sat there and listened to them talk about English literature. But and the teacher apparently didn't notice, but all the kids noticed that like a twenty five year old man man was just creeping on their English class. God. Um, you know, and then the school quickly, you know, it became a thing where we all, all the parents got email and again, nothing inappropriate even happened, but it, you know, and they're like, we're going to change our policy and have, you know, uh, uh, I forget what, the, I don't know if they have passwords or if the teacher is whitelisting who's in, yeah, they fixed it, but yeah, there's, there's a mix of fixes they've instituted. Um, and they've been updating the thing almost weekly now. And they just, I think they just put out version 5.0. The big pro hassle for me is to fix this camera problem. I, you know, I had to buy a really nice video camera and you can use software like, um, cam twist or, yeah. uh, OSB, um, to make a virtual webcam out of any camera that you want or out of any window you want, literally anything. But the Zoom set it up so that it no longer will accept virtual webcams because it's, you know, using some other more standard Apple library that mm. is a little bit more locked down. Uh, and so there are people that are now, because they, they so desperately need virtual webcams to run their classroom or, you know, just because they want to have a nicer looking camera, you either have to like downgrade your Zoom to something more insecure, or you can go in and remove the code signing on the Zoom app and then it will accept virtual webcams. <laughs> so the thing is like, they, Zoom got super successful because it was, you know, it did a whole bunch of growth hacks and it was way easier. And they also played fast and loose with security. Now that they're doing the right thing, they brought on Alex Stamos from Facebook yeah. to like be a consultant, all this stuff. People are still like, well, I'm I'm still going to disable some of your security because I want to do a thing with it. Uh, yeah, I've I've yeah. heard from a couple people who are having great success with uh, iPhones as their virtual web cameras. Yep. Uh, I mean, yep. again, uh, it's like all right, the world is short of commercial or, or domestic toilet paper, and okay, yeah. I get it. You know, everybody gets it. Everybody's pooping at home instead of pooping at school or in the office or wherever else we've gone to the bathroom. And so, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. The, the run on webcams, it makes sense, but it's like the, uh, who, if you worked at like the webcam industry, you're like a webcam, you know, yeah. supply chain person at Logitech or one of these companies, like who would have thought that your job would become a pants on fire company wide emergency in 2020. Yeah. Well, and Logitech, they're worried, you know, they, they, they know it's bad for their brand. So like, right. they're talking to every retailer they can trying to stop price gouging. Right. They can't stop it on eBay, but right. like, they'll, they'll like, they're like, uh, they're, they're hunting for Logitech cameras on Amazon every day right. and issuing takedown notices because they don't, they don't like the look of one of their cameras being sold for, you know, $600. Right. It's, it's bad enough that they're out. Right. Because it's like, oh, yeah. you know, it, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth because you need it. It's all of a sudden your, your, your professional image is, you know, being hindered because you don't have a quality webcam. And yeah, it stinks. Yeah. You can't get a Logitech one. But then when you see one being sold for, you know, three or four times the price, it's like, oh my God, this is terrible. It feels, you know. Yeah. 
uh, you know, literally is like a black market. It's it's not good. But anyway, it's who would have thought that would have been a a go a go go industry in 2020? Yeah. But here we are. Not not me. Uh, anything else on the iPad Magic Keyboard before we take a break? Man, I don't think so. I, uh, you know, the one thing is um, the the charging port. Mm. It doesn't do data, but it does charging. Yeah. Uh, I, I've got a little USB meter, um, and it charges almost as fast as just plugging it in directly, which I did not expect through those little pogo pins on the back. So I, it's like it's just a couple of watts uh, shy. So I totally blew that in my review initially. I and I don't know how because I did measure it. And and mm. I think that where I went wrong was that I was measuring it while still using it and that maybe I was doing something that was doing, you know, like while yep. I had it plugged in directly in the side of the iPad, I was doing something more intensive when I had it plugged into the Magic Keyboards thing. But I wrote in my review that it was a significant difference in charging speed. And that's what I got in my notes. I, I really did, but I was totally wrong. And and Apple even reached out to me in the very kind and nice way that Apple PR does, where they're <laughs> like, hey, we loved your review. And I'm like, wait, why are we on the phone? <laughs> but, you know, you, you said this. That's actually the team. The team, you know, thinks that that's not the way it's supposed to be. I was like, well, I'll look again. And I looked again and did it. And it was it's exactly what you said. It's, I don't know, maybe like 85% the speed. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's like, it's like 21 watts versus like 25. Yeah. It's really good, which is excellent. And it's, yeah. it's, so I, I rejiggered that part of my review and crossed, you know, used the actual strike through HTML thing so that I mm. wasn't weaseling. You know, I didn't want anybody to feel like I was gaslighting them. Like I thought Gruber said that it was slow. I was like, no, no, I'm wrong. But I need to, I, it was so wrong. I need to post like some kind of minor separate update to just say, Hey, this is actually a great way to charge the thing. Yeah, I mean that's 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 how I charge it every night now. I just set it on there, pick it up in the morning. Yeah, yep. yeah. It it would be. I I don't know why they can't do data. Uh, it it you know. Uh, it I get. I'm sure there's some kind of technical reason there that it's not really USB. It's just some proprietary. It would be cool if you could. But yeah, I think it's actually pretty pretty much just USB, which is why it's so bonkers that nobody but Logitech has ever bothered to make anything for it. Um, like I don't, I don't think it's part of the MFI program. Uh, none of that. I think it's just that the 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 cost of making a part to work with the smart connector is so high that um, you you have to have a high degree of confidence that you're going to be able to continue to make that thing for many, many years. And I think the iPad changes form factor often enough that only Apple is willing to, to sync that, uh, that initial development cost in. Yeah. That's my hunch. I, I don't actually know, but it is very strange. If you, if you really look around, there's nothing that uses the smart connector. Yeah. It, it is true. It is a little confusing. I find that as somebody who, like I just said a couple of minutes ago, I have for a, quite a long time been a, a Bluetooth iPad user with uh, iPad Bluetooth keyboard user with my iPad. Yep. And it's nice for just walking around with the iPad again. But then every time you go to type, you have to remember to toggle Bluetooth on and off or hit the button. Of, you know, you have to do something to get it to disconnect from the keyboard if you haven't left the range. And these days, I never leave. <laughs> Bluetooth range. Uh, It's so nice. It sounds like such a bizarre thing to complain about, but it's so nice that it's not Bluetooth. And so it's 
if it's connected, it's connected. And if it's not physically connected, it's not physically connected, which makes you wonder why there aren't more peripherals that use it because it's so nice convenience wise, but there aren't. Yep. I don't know. Uh, Anyway, let's take a break, and I will thank our first sponsor. It's our good friends at Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E, Linode Cloud Hosting. Look, whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode Cloud Hosting has the pricing, support, and scale that you need to take your project to the next level. With 11 data centers worldwide, enterprise-grade hardware, and their next-generation network, Linode Cloud Hosting delivers the server performance you expect at a price you probably don't. They have a special offer for all listeners of the talk show and new Linode customers. Use the promo code TALKSHOW2020. Talk show. Actually, it's just 20, not 2020. I forgot. TALKSHOW20. Uh, and you will receive $20 in free credits. As an added bonus, they're giving you three free months of object storage. That is a new thing they have that is uh, API compatible with AWS storage S3. So if you have like code that hooks up to S3, you can just switch to Linode's object storage. Just switch right over. Three months free. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh I love Linode. That is actually where Daring Fireball is now hosted. It is absolutely rock solid. I love the stability. I love the speed. I love the interface to everything I have to manage when I have to manage something. It is really terrific. Uh, and look, they've got really, truly enterprise-grade plans that scale up to anything. But their Nanode plan starts at just 5 bucks, $5. And that's a really good plan. And with the $20 deal with the coupon, that's four months free. So look, go to linode.com slash the talk show. That's the URL. And uh, remember that code talkshow20 to get your $20 credit. Linode.com slash the talk show. All right, next up, iPhone SE. And conveniently, you also <laughs> wrote the Verge's review of the iPhone SE. Yeah. <laughs> And this might have been my first iPhone review for the Verge. Usually, uh, Neil I does them does them all, but uh, I uh, I had a, a little bit more space in my uh, video time than uh, than he did. Uh, it is such a, an interesting product, and I like it. I think it's I think it's a really great little thing. Uh, I think it's just what the doctor ordered for an awful lot of iPhone users. Uh, but it is also the strangest phone I think any company will release this year because I don't think any company but Apple could possibly release a phone like this. I mean, it. Um, I I agree. It's it's uh it's funny the it it I actually had to restrain myself from like certain kinds of praise because I just I know that in a few years. It may not age as well as it feels right now, but um, the idea that you could get a phone of this quality that can do these things for $400 uh, is, it's just shocking. It's, it's so incredibly good. 
it's a mix of things that are two and a half years old, like just the way it looks, the display. The display gets a lot of that attention because so much, and we'll get to this when we talk about Android phones too, but you know, for obvious reasons, it is the most obvious thing that the whole point of the last 14, 13 years of smartphone design is that they are quote unquote all display and slowly but surely uh, as they've evolved across the board they've actually gotten more and more all display like the mm-hmm. the the 20 the original iPhone at the time seemed like oh my god it's all display there's only one button whereas now the the screen to surface area ratio of the original iPhone is seems comically small for this yeah. display well by modern standards meaning 2020 the I, the new iPhone SE has very large chin and forehead. I mean, there's, you just don't, there's no getting around it. There's no getting around it. Uh, the, so, you know, the immediate response to that complaint is, well, you know, that that was how they got the price down is like, they, they were able to use the factories they've had online since, you know, 2014 or whatever, uh, to just keep making this thing. And they didn't have to retool anything, which I get, but that also, um, is not my problem. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, it's, you know, I, I, I've, I used, plenty of Android phones that cost this little, there's many reasons why they're not as good as this, to be clear, uh, where they do manage to reduce the bezel. Now, in order to do that, Apple would have to make one of basically three choices. Um, Number one, they'd have to decide to reduce it on the top. Well, assume number one, they'd have to retool everything. Assume they're willing to retool. They'd either need to reduce the bezel on the top, but leave the big home button on the bottom, and then it would look asymmetrical and weird. And they wouldn't do that. I guarantee you that's They wouldn't out. do that. That's nope. Out. No way. Uh, they'd have to put the fingerprint sensor on the back, which is what a lot of Android phones have done for years. Uh, I don't know if they'd be willing to do that. Or they would need to spend the extra money to do an in-screen fingerprint sensor, which um, even in the best of cases is not really that great. And Or number four, they'd have to just switch to Face ID, which would have, again, added a ton of cost. Yeah, and so on number three, putting the fingerprint sensor in screen, I mm-hmm. I don't I wouldn't say that that's something Apple. It, that's a great list because I do I feel like a that list is comprehensive. So the asymmetrical chin and forehead is something Apple would not do. I don't yeah. even think they would do it a little like and, and yeah. to a degree that's almost irrational. Like when you look at a lot of the flagship Android phones that are out there, where there's a little bit more of a chin than the forehead, and I don't think that's mm-hmm. a particularly bad look, especially if we're going to concede that the Apple phones since the iPhone 10 have a, a notch on the one side, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Like the notch, whatever you think of it is far more obtrusive and asymmetrical than the fact that the bezel other than the notch on the top is the same exact size as the bezel along the bottom that doesn't have a notch. But uh, I mean, you know what I mean? That it's, it's crazy that they're fanatical about making the bezel symmetric on all four sides when they were willing to use a notch for the, the face ID array. Um, But they are, and it, there is something in Apple's internal design aesthetics that I, I'm not even saying I agree with it, but I'm I can I can feel it in my teeth mm-hmm. that they feel that asymmetry in that way is wrong, so they're not going to do it. Yep. 
The in-screen fingerprint thing, I think they would do in theory. I think they might do going forward as an additional thing in addition to Face ID. I know there have been rumors Mm -hmm. along that line, but even without the rumors, I just feel like, eh, if they could do it right, they might. But there's no way they would do it in an SE. Right, right? exactly. Well, so there's a couple—I mean, one, it's expensive, um, but two, I— believe it requires that you use an OLED screen, not a, not LCD, because like the LCD needs to have a backlight. And that if you have a backlight, you can't put a fingerprint right. sensor underneath it. Oh, right? yeah. Um, that makes so sense. It, it works with, with OLED. Um, I, there's actually a fifth option, which some phones do, where they either integrate the fingerprint sensor in the, the sleep-wake button on the side, or they have it sort of next to it on the side as a separate thing. And again, I just I don't think Apple would ever do that, because that's that completely changes the you know, the modalities of what you expect iPhone buttons to do. Uh, and I, I think they, they very much didn't want to introduce a whole new interaction model into an iPhone SE right. that wasn't there before. Yeah. And we'll have to get to that. So, yeah, I don't, I don't really think they had it for the SE to be the SE and start at $400. It sort of had to be this way. Yeah. Um, but then the weird aspects of the trade-offs that they're able to do because they're Apple is that they're able to put the not just good but literally best of industry A13 chip in. Yeah. You 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 cannot buy an Android phone for any price that has a faster processor than this $400 phone. And so a competitive with Android, it is the fastest phone that you could get, and it's only four hundred dollars. And as I really, I sort of enjoyed pointing out in my review, it is faster at single threaded performance than a three thousand dollars sixteen inch MacBook Pro, which is the best <laughs> laptop chip that Apple makes available in the MacBook Pro, and. I don't want to go on a whole benchmark digression, but single-threaded benchmark scores are more important than multi-threaded for most people in day-to-day use, especially on a phone, because you're just doing things like the the areas where multi-threaded performance can really, really make a difference in your life are professional contexts, like you're you're rendering out uh, 4K video or something like that. It's, you know, things... The things where multi-threaded can really make a difference are professional contexts or developers. You know, like you know, Xcode developers can really make use on build times of having a whole number of, of cores. Single-threaded performance really matters. JavaScript, for example, so anything you're doing on the web where it's powered by JavaScript code, it's always single-threaded, and mm-hmm. so it matters. And it's four hundred dollars. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. The camera is really good for a single lens camera and it has features like the portrait mode stuff that Mm -hmm. you you know really quite remarkable uh and it's four hundred dollars it's a really good camera um yeah so the so actually the 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 two things that make me go ah about the iphone se is and you know like Honestly, the only things that keep me from just straight up calling it a triumph are will the camera and the battery in particular feel like they hold up in two or three years? Mm. And I like complaining, will this phone be good in three years as a complaint seems kind of silly given what how long Android phones at this price point tend to last. But just in terms of like in the context of iPhones and recommending iPhones, 
it is a thing to notice. So iFixit did their teardown went up uh, Monday morning. Uh, they were recording this. And the battery is exactly the same. In fact, you can swap out the iPhone 8 battery. <laughs> it's the exact same size battery. And we know that those batteries, you know, start to degrade after a while. And the thing that shocked me, given the quality of the camera, is it seems like the iPhone SE has the exact same ca- camera module as the iPhone 8. I thought it maybe had the 10R camera module, but you can swap in the iPhone 8 camera module and it just works. I, I thought that um, it did too, and that's a, that's an error in my iPhone SE review. I didn't say well, cat, I didn't say for a fact that it had the sensor from the 10R, but I thought yeah. I, I kind of thought that it did, and I took side by side photos with in tough lighting conditions, and it's like mm-hmm. uh, it looks the same. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's. This isn't like guaranteed because they haven't done the full right. X-ray and like taken apart this actual sensor module, but you can one for one swap it out with the iPhone 8, uh, which is a pretty good sign that it's like probably the same or very, very close. Uh, it looks like it's a little bit smaller than a 10R module when you look at the photos. And like that is a thing to be concerned about long term. It might not hold up as well, but it is a thing to absolutely marvel at in terms of the camera quality that they have right now. Um, you know, when they said we put the A13 in it, therefore the pictures are going to be better. I was like, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I thought the same um, thing. But if 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 it's using a sensor or something that's virtually equivalent to the sensor of the iPhone 8, and it's able to get you know, the quality of photos that come out of this thing. Um, I'm shocked at how good, how good it is. Um, my only, you know, I think it's pretty bad in low light. I think it actually falls down like a steeper cliff in low light than an iPhone, um, 11 does, for example, or or even maybe even a 10 R. Um, but other than that, there's really not a whole lot to complain about. Yeah. And it doesn't do night mode. Right. Which is weird. Yeah. Because I, so it it does have the full array of portrait mode modes for for lack of a sub modes and port you know lighting effects i guess we could call them in portrait mode yeah. and the ones that mask out the background you know yeah. whatever apple calls them i always forget but the ones that just isolate you the person and mask out the background as black or white uh stage the stage light ones and high key light ones um yeah the other other phones they've had don't do that because it's, I guess, computationally or machine learning-wise expensive. And with the A13, they're able to do it. And the results mm-hmm. are really good. And I, I put it in a footnote in my review, but I, I kind of like, eh, not really use those modes since they were new. Not that I never use them, but I don't use them as much. And yeah. I realized I was saying that other people may not, but what I really was doing was writing about myself is that the live preview in the camera is rough. And then mm-hmm. you snap your self portrait, like with the selfie mode and the, the, the high key lighting and it doesn't look good as you're taking it and then you give it a second or two to process and you get yep. you can it not always sometimes it's funky and you know your glasses are off or your ears not right or something um but more often than not it's actually really credible and a hundred times better than the preview would suggest um yeah so i was like ah, oh, this actually does deserve to be here but if that's computational i thought that the night mode was purely computational. And so the A13 would have allowed it and it doesn't. And I don't know if that's just like deliberate marketing, like, well, uh, like I'm sure it's not just a, 
a secret switch they could flip to enable it, but that they didn't spend time on it because they didn't want the $400 phone to have it for marketing reasons. Or yeah, I I I don't want to ascribe that. Like that that's a that that's like one step too far down like a conspiracy rabbit hole for me. Although I'm tempted to say it, I think the fact that it if it is in fact something similar to the iPhone sensor, maybe that's a piece of the puzzle. But the thing that they've done here that they didn't do before the 10R and the 10 was they are doing you know they're taking multiple 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 photos and you know yeah. their adva- whatever they call their advanced HDR like the the foundation of what computational photography is these days. Um, and they are doing that with this this camera and this A13 processor. Um, the one thing that they're not doing that's pretty modern is their depth map, uh, as far as I know, is completely done via machine learning, just by like semantically yeah. looking at what's in the image and trying to guess it. They're not doing, you know, the weird thing where you can like do a differential between like two sides of a pixel or whatever. Yeah. So I, let me just say before before we go on. I my personal yeah. belief is not that it's marketing spite. I just I think that there is something about the the this iPhone eight era sensor that does not makes it incompatible with the way they do night mode. I really mm-hmm. and the fact that they didn't hold back on the portrait mode stuff makes me think that if they could have done it relatively easy, they would have. A- yeah. And the fact that the thousand dollar plus iPad Pros that they just came out with don't have those portrait mode features. But they do have an A12 series right. chip. Makes me think that it really is a, a tied to the A13 specifically, which the mm-hmm. SE has, and the, even the iP- new iPad Pros don't, and needs a, a very recent sensor. And so yep. it, the iPad SE has this the A13, which enables the portrait mode stuff, but can't do the night mode. So that's my theory. But yeah, I feel like on a podcast, you have to toss it out, you know, as who knows. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And again, like, uh, I cannot wait for someone to actually like break the metal on this thing and look directly at the sensor and like confirm that it is the same. Uh, Because it might not be. It might be something slightly different. Um, But the fact that you could just swap the part out seems like a pretty good sign. It's it's crazy. The other thing with the SE that it, 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 so Apple is so different than any other phone maker. I mean, they control their own OS, which is the the thing everybody thinks about and is the most notable aspect. Mm. Um, but the little things, like it's just underappreciated that they make their own chips and that their chip team is like seriously like years ahead of the competition. It it's really a strange situation that doesn't have any historical comparison. Um. And enables them to put a top of the line chip in a four hundred dollar phone. Yeah. Um, well, and also like nobody else has. I mean, Samsung sells a shit ton of phones. Don't get me wrong, but nobody else has the economy of scale to be like, well, we're already making so many of these eight eight thirteens anyway. It would probably cost us more to put yeah. a lower end chip in it and keep that production line spun up just for this phone than it would to just use our top of the line one that we're already making anyway. Um, nobody else could do that. But so the the one of the downsides that Apple faces though is that they just don't make many phones model wise, mm-hmm. right? So they, right. you know, yeah. and even if you count and and I, you know, people underestimate this when you go to Apple dot com or when when you go into the actual Apple store when when the Apple stores are open, um, and you see what they have on the table, they've got now they've got the SE, the 10R, 
and the iPhone 11 and then the 11 Pros, and that's it. But they yeah. still make a lot of the other ones from recent years. They're still in manu- being manufactured, and they're sold, quote-unquote, in the channel. Like if you go to Best Buy, there's a lot more iPhones available, like the iPhone 10s and 10s Max mm. and – you know, you could buy. I don't think they still make the original ten anymore, but you could. You could buy it for years after it was out of Apple's official lineup. Yeah, you can even there. I don't know if they're still making it, but in channel, the iPhone eight plus is still out there in the world. Uh, I think they might still be making it, and if they're not yeah. making it, making it, they they stockpiled it because somebody, uh, I, uh, somebody had it in their review that that it's officially in the channel. Because they don't have a home screen iPhone in the plus size that's called the SE. There is no SE plus. Um, right. But that means, though, that Apple has to always kind of has to try to kill multiple market segment birds with one stone. And there's uh, the SE is trying to do a bunch of things at once, right? It's it's the low cost new phone that will have technical relevance for years to come. Like you're going to get four or five years of software updates for an SE that you buy tomorrow. Yep. Uh, It's only 400 bucks. Right. And, and again, maybe for just for a lot of people, 400 bucks still sounds like a lot for a phone, but it's not a lot for a new iPhone. And that's their answer to that. Um, But then there's also the segment and, you know, I know people toss out their mom as a quote unquote, you know, example of a technically unsavvy person, but my mom is a really is the perfect target for the new iPhone SE. She has a 6 or a 6S, I forget which one, but it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. it, at the very newest it's a 6S. Her battery is failing and you know, it's usable, but it's like she doesn't get through a day and she doesn't do anything. Like so she like yeah. leaves the house her phone is like you know in the red by the time she kept comes home from you know like a, a day out, um, and I've been telling her you should wait. And now it, you know the last couple of weeks it's been really easy to t- tell her she could wait. She doesn't want new. She wants the, you know, and I it, she's gotten and uh, you know Apple has her number. She's gotten the email to her her Mac dot com address with with telling her about the SE, and she's like, this is what I want, and I'm like, mom, that's the one I've been telling you. <laughs> You should wait for her. <laughs> but she loves that it looks like the phone she already knows. You know, it that that is a market segment, you know, and mm-hmm. and it, the the touch ID versus face ID thing is huge. There are millions of people who just because they've never used face ID and it sounds weird to have your phone facially recognize you, they want yeah. they want a fingerprint sensor. And so the Apple's trying to, you know sell something to this market and the fact that for all of we enthusiasts who think that it looks dated that it has this chin and forehead that go back to the iphone 6 uh is comforting to people who just want a new phone that's faster and has a fresh battery uh yep. and works exactly like they did they you know the se is trying to do all those things at once yeah, and it's a lot. And the fact that it's able to pull off most of that stuff, or all of it actually, is uh, really impressive. Um, it's funny. I I made a joke of this in, in my video, but uh, I forgot how much I like the home button. <laughs> like, it's really nice. I, and actually, it's not even just the home button. It's um, 
it's swiping up from the bottom for control center. Hmm. I'm, I'm so used to that at home, but for going home now that it, it felt really, really weird to swipe up and have control center pop up. Um, but it's just, it's, it's such a larger target of a swipe than that upper right hand corner that, uh, as soon as I went back to it and after a day, it's like, oh yeah, I prefer this. Uh, in a funny way. Now, I would never want to go back to not having the full gesture navigation and swiping up from the bottom is the appropriate way to do that to go home. It is like the thing you want to be the easiest. So it makes sense. Apple made the right call there. Um, but, you know, just like for a little while, at least it's nice to like just have easier access to control center. Yeah, I kind of feel, uh, you know, and there's, you know, I've heard it from from home button diehards who are enthusiasts because they read Daring Fireball and follow me on Twitter and that they're, you know, oh, yeah, I forgot the other market that this is meant to appease is the people who want the smallest possible iPhone. Right. Well, I, I didn't bring it up because it's not, I mean, it is the smallest possible iPhone, but that's not necessarily saying much. Right. <laughs> right. But, you know, and those people are really, you know, heart sick that it wasn't iPhone five sized, which is what they yeah. really want. They wanted a new SE that looked like the old SE, which looked like an iPhone five. Um, and I tried to explain that a week or two ago on Daring Fireball as to why that isn't really aligned with Apple's strategy, even though that's a reasonable idea. And if Apple made seven different iPhones at a time, maybe one of them would still be that size. But yeah, I think all the developers that are looking forward to dropping that from their UI support are like, no, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> really, fewer screen sizes would be a little better. Um, yeah, but uh, it, <laughs> it, it, I, you know, I. So the one thing about the the iPhone 10 style, I wish we had a name for it. You know, like like when when mm. when Mac OS 10 first shipped and they had the um, back. Way back in like 2001 or two, whatever year it was, Steve Jobs introduced the new user interface. They gave it yep. a name. They called it Aqua. And Aqua was yep. that look and feel that they, you know, looked so good you could lick it. And it's, you know, had this, it, it just, it was nice to have a name for it. Yeah. It would be nice if we had a name for the iPhone 10 style interface where you swipe up from the bottom and control centers in the top right and, you know, yeah. some things are the same, but some things are fundamentally different. Um, I, you know, and I've I've gone back and forth in my writing, calling it like the post post iPhone ten interface or whatever. I get it why Apple hasn't named it. They just sort of want you not to think about it. But when you do write about it, there's nothing to call it. But the one yeah. thing that it, it would to me, it's like fitting jigsaw puzzle pieces together as designers. And I feel like Apple is like, okay, we don't have a button anymore. What can we do? Well, we could swipe up from the bottom like WebOS used to do. I don't know if you remember that, Dieter. <laughs> you think? Yeah, I mean, I vaguely. I vaguely remember WebOS. <laughs> yeah. You could swipe up from the bottom and your apps would yeah. look like cards. And then you could go side to side. And you start fitting in all these things that the home button and touch ID used to do. And it's like, well, what, what about if you want to authorize a purchase and you're looking at the phone already? Well, you could double click the power button after face ID yeah. identifies you. And they're like, okay, you know, that's not perfect, but that works. And then I feel like the one puzzle piece that was left over was control center. 
right? Yeah. It's like top down was notifications and it still is. And bottom up now is, is, is home screen and multitasking. And the sides mm-hmm. mean other things, you know, like the left side is how you go back in a, in an app. And it's like they had this puzzle piece and they're like, well, you could go down from the top right corner where the Wi-Fi and cellular signal strength is because that's where the Wi-Fi and signal strength things are, control center. Also, that's um, just just going to say that's how, that's how WebOS did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that maybe. <laughs> Maybe that's. I wouldn't you like to think that there's somebody on the team who was working on that who was at Palm, you know, ten, ten, yeah. eleven years ago, who was just like just keeps raising their hand. <laughs> By the way, yeah. we solved this problem once before. Well, no, maybe the, I'd like to think that maybe the way they sold it internally was they didn't even mention it. They were like, "How? Oh, how right. about?" <laughs> They're like, "Well, that that could work." It is. It's. It's. It's it just. It's not. It's uh, uh, ill-fitting puzzle piece is not quite right, but it yeah. it still it it just feels overloaded at the top of the screen that it's well. So the the way Android solves this is it just it combines those two things. There's right. a quick settings area that comes down, and then the notification shade is attached to that, and so you can expand the quick settings or the notification shade. So the entire top of the Android phone is both of those things, and what you see when it comes down depends on like how many times you swipe down. Yeah. Well, neither is great. There's trade-offs yep, with both. Agree. But um, yep. yeah, it's weird. I, I had a really hard time with it with when I was trying to use the SE for a week where I just kept going top right because I've, gra- I've really ingrained it into my into my habits. Yep. The, the yep. one that I just could not a, – a few of the things I just could not get used to is I could not get used to the fact that you can't tap the screen anywhere to wake it up. I, I, yes. I just, I, I cannot tell you how many times I thought the battery had died. And I was like, wait, that might be a problem. Cause I know I had like 60% battery and now this thing's dead. Yep. But it did, it does still have the accelerometer where if you like, it, it feels that you pulled, picked it up or it feels you pulled it out of your pocket, it will light up the screen. And so I couldn't just tap it on the table, but I got the habit of just like picking the thing up to wake it up. Yeah, but it's, and, and maybe it's like a review thing too, where I'm spending a lot of time in a review at a keyboard, you know, and the iPad I'm, or iPhone I'm reviewing is right there on the desk next to me. And I, but I want to, I want to mm. wake it up. I just kept poking at it. Didn't wake up. Uh, I'm trying to think what else on the iPhone SE. Anything else? I mean, you can make fun of me for being sad about the headphone jack. Ah. <laughs> well, I'm not going to make fun. I mean, at this point, <laughs> at this point, I give you credit for sticking with it, you know? Well, so the, the the only reason on the iPhone SE in particular, and uh, maybe maybe this is patronizing, maybe this is whatever, is that uh, a bunch of Android phones in this price class make it a point to leave the headphone jack in because they figure if you're price sensitive enough to want to spend that little on a phone, you're price sensitive enough to not want to have to go out and spend 150 bucks on a pair of Bluetooth headphones. Yeah, and you know that if you want to get replacements, you do just want to pop into the drugstore and get the seven dollar ones. You know that yeah, you don't even you know you just you you know that they work. You can just look at it. You don't have to look for like a works with iPhone logo or something. It's you just mm. you know it just has a headphone jack. You know it's going to work. 
you know, and and you also know you have a drawer full of them, even if you're not the sort of person like us who has a drawer full of all sorts of cables. Everybody's got a drawer yeah. for, full of headphones. I keep a stockpile of the original iPhone earbuds that, you know, nobody really likes because they fall out of your ear just because um, that's the most... Uh, it's the most reliable microphone I have for conference calls. Like mm. last ditch, my Bluetooth headphones failed. Blah 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 blah. I just grab those, plug it into my Mac, and know that I'm going to have reliable headphones and a microphone for a conference call. I I used to have a stockpile of them because I've I bought a bunch of over the years. I I just wound up. How could you not in in my racket wind up with a ton of them? I. Yeah. I owned a bunch of iPods by the mid 2000s by the or the end of the 2000s at least I started doing reviews on a regular basis and getting review units and Apple doesn't even want the headphones back when you send the, re- the review units back and I wouldn't even open the new ones I would just put them you know keep them in a nice little case and put them aside I yeah. I wound up going through my whole stockpile because I'm not going to name names but it was my son Jonas who <laughs> Slowly but surely destroyed them all. <laughs> because you, <laughs> while there's there are good things to say about them, and the microphone is one of them, the the durability, <laughs> yeah, much like light, Apple's lightning cables, the durability of the connector where it goes in is not great. <laughs> nope. And once he found out which drawer I kept them in. Eventually, I went in. I was like, "Hey, there's no more of these left." <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, do you have any more of those?" And I was like, "Oh my god!" But on the plus side, we got him AirPods for Christmas like two years ago, two Christmases ago, yeah. and he hasn't lost them uh, either of oh, them. Wow. And so, uh, kudos to him. And it has completely alleviated uh, his destruction of my entire collection of <laughs> Apple branded keychains. All right, let me take another break here and thank our other sponsor for this episode, our good friends at Squarespace. Hey, Squarespace, make your next move. Look, everybody's got a lot of extra time on their hands right now. Uh, if one of the things you're looking to do while you have time at home is start a new website or maybe update an old website, take a look at Squarespace. Squarespace does it all. Everything from registering domain names to uh, templates, for any type of design to start with, award-winning templates that scale across devices, responsive design from the phone up to a giant screen, uh, to elements that you can embed right in your website, like a store that includes all the commerce stuff, or a blog where you have an actual CMS right built into the Squarespace system for adding posts or hosting a podcast, anything like that. Uh, analytics, find out who's coming to your website, from where, Squarespace has it built in. Award-winning tech support, everything you can imagine, great pricing, great support, great documentation, great templates to choose from. You name it, Squarespace has it. Go there, start it. They included with it is 30 days free when you when you just start building a website. Spend a month building a website, see if you like it when you decide to sign up. Use this code TALKSHOW. Go to squarespace.com slash talk show to start. And then when you pay, which you don't have to do for 30 days, use that code talk show. You save 10% off your first purchase. So go to squarespace.com slash talk show. Remember that code talk show. And if it's not you, if it's somebody else you know who in the quarantine is like, hey, maybe I should make a new website, send them to Squarespace, give them the code, save them 10%. My thanks to Squarespace. 
Uh, so let's, uh, we don't have tons of time left, but let's talk Android. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear what you think are the, the flagships worth talking about in 2020 so far. Uh, so the most interesting stuff so far, uh, there's uh, a couple of Samsung Galaxy S20s, the Ultra and the regular. Uh, and I, I put those in two different categories. Uh, then there is the uh, new OnePlus 8 Pro. That's three. And then we're soon to have something from Motorola trying to make a comeback. Um, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff in and around all those, but those are like the, the most interesting ones. I mean, the thing to know about Android flagships is they're all completely dependent on Qualcomm processors, right? Mm -hmm. They like Qualcomm has a monopoly in the US. Samsung is doing its level best to break it with Exynos processors that it tries to sell internationally. But like in the US, it's just Qualcomm. And like you get what Qualcomm gives you. And what Qualcomm is giving Android manufacturers this year is the Snapdragon 865, and then there's a, a 700 series. And the 865 is notable because the 865 is the fastest one. It's the one everybody's going to want, and it only works with 5G. There is no 4G version because it, it has a separate LTE, has a separate modem uh, from the processor, which is weird. Um, but that modem, the only compatible modem is a 5G modem. All of which is to say flagship Android phones are just like every other phone, but especially this year, they're coming in pretty expensive. Um, even the quote unquote cheap one, like OnePlus is still, you know, 800 bucks, 900 bucks um, because they've got that 5G radio that costs a bit more money. Um, and so that the cadence is also weird because you expect phones to come in the fall, but Qualcomm releases these processors basically in the spring. And so the first one out of the gate with them is usually Samsung with the right. Galaxy S line. So uh, this year, Samsung was trying to pull off two things. They were, you know, this is the big year for 5G. It's a big year that 5G is actually real and matters and it's something you're going to want. I think that's not true, but whatever. Uh, and so they, they wanted to push 5G with the Galaxy S20 line. And then they have in the Galaxy S20 Ultra, which is the big, big, big one, the huge one, they were trying to push this whole new camera system that has a periscope, you know, so there's a mirror that like pushes down so you can get extra zoom, whatever. But they also have a 108 megapixel camera sensor in it uh, that Samsung makes instead of just using a Sony sensor, which is what everybody else has been doing for years. So Samsung really wanted to like, we can, we can do this whole thing ourselves now. Um, and the ultra is just like 1400 bucks. Uh, turns out that 108 megapixel camera, they didn't figure it out. Like the, they couldn't, they couldn't wrangle it, uh, and so it's it's got really bad focus problems, and it's just kind of meh. Um, whereas the Galaxy S20, which has a less ambitious camera, is just a great phone. It's really, really good. It's uh, it's probably my favorite Android phone of the past, you know, six months to a year. Uh, I really enjoy it. Um, and then the story with OnePlus, just to ramble, get through the rest of the ramble here, is... To date, their whole shtick has been, we give you a really good quality phone, but we hold back one or two features to save a bunch of money so you can get virtually the same quality as a Samsung phone, uh, but you can spend a few hundred dollars less for stuff you don't care about. Usually that's something like wireless charging. But this year, they decided they were going to take Samsung head on uh, by including wireless charging that's like super fast wireless charging it's really fascinating uh, but also with um, working with more carriers so now it works with both t-mobile and verizon for the first time so they are really really trying to come at samsung's like dominant monopoly in uh, android phones 
uh, I don't know if it's a monopoly, but they've got a huge dominant position, especially in the U.S., and they're finally getting challenged head on. Yeah, well, yeah, monopolies, it's like a lowercase m monopoly, right? It's yeah. sort of like Apple's yeah. monopoly on iPhones, where they don't have 50% of the market share of the phones, but they do have the only iPhones and the only phones running well, iOS. And Samsung's yeah. monopoly is sort of like mental monopoly, uh, uh, you know, on high-end, state-of-the-art, flagship android phones i mean however you exactly. want to describe flagship yeah you know samsung has sort of had like a they're at the forefront of this i, yeah, I and huawei huawei was coming for him until that whole all went to hell but the reason samsung has that that monopoly on the high end is because they've they spent the past 20 years like forming relationships with carriers and cutting deals with with carriers in the U.S. and so, when Verizon wants to have a new phone, Samsung is at the door with a suitcase full of ten of them. Yeah, I saw. So the the hundred and eight megapixel phone. It yeah. I still don't really understand how like if most phones have like twelve megapixels and how it jumps up to one hundred and eight because it's it's sort of like <laughs> a funny definition of megapixels. Yeah, so they uh they're, they're they bin it down to uh I think 12 most of the time. So they combine all the 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 you know megapixels together into one larger pixel. Uh but they the way the subpixels work is a little bit fuzzy in terms of what the RGB is. And so there it's 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 not quite exactly like one to one what you would expect just you just get an RGB and then you know multiply it times never never megapixels you have. Um, but the, the way the binning works, the way that they like combine those pixels in like really solid conditions, you do actually get a really high megapixel image that does have a little bit more detail. The problem comes is you don't actually want, you're not shooting in perfectly bright light with a perfectly still camera on a tripod 99% of the time. And so what you want to do is you want to combine all of those pixels, you know, in the hardware in some way so that it acts more like a manageable 12 or 16 megapixel sensor. And um, they just didn't get it. Hmm. They like, they weren't able to wrangle all that stuff. Like the thing that makes the the Samsung Galaxy S20 Ultra, terrible name. Oh, there's a 5G in there somewhere too. Uh <laughs> What makes the thing that makes that camera good in insofar as it's good is it's just a larger sensor. Right. It's just physically bigger and that makes a huge difference. Right. And that's sort of in even lay person's terms, bigger sensor is uh, in and of itself is always better. It just yeah. means because yeah. it means more light hits the sensor and doesn't even matter how you count the pixels, it's bigger sensors better. And it, yeah. it even goes, you know, goes back to the film days where the large format cameras, you know, that like professional fashion photographers would use or landscape photographers like Ansel Adams, you could just get these fantastic images out of this enormous compared to a 35 millimeter frame of film. Yeah. Negative. But so the the dynamic with especially flagship Android phones is 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 really interesting and I think different than iPhones. So, you know, everybody's cycle is slowing down. People are upgrading less often, right? right? So that's thing one is uh, everybody knows that they're not necessarily going to get everybody to upgrade every year. So that's fine. With the iPhone, Apple just like Apple just keeps you know. It's another iPhone. Here you go. These are the new things we added to it. But with uh, Android phones, there's so much more competition amongst, you know, the different players there that they have to find some way to not only get convince people they might want to upgrade, but also convince people that they want to buy, you know, a Samsung or a OnePlus phone instead of, you know, a competitor's phone. And so they get into 
these like sort of weird spec horse races that sometimes lead them down blind alleys. I, I sort of think of it in the same way that I think about uh, television. So everybody bought a HD TV and they, the reason they actually bought it is because it was a thin LCD, not because it was 1080p. Um, and then after that cycle, all the TV manufacturers were like, well, what's next? Well, what? Maybe everybody wants 3D TVs. Right. Nope. Nobody wants 3D. Maybe everybody wants curved TVs. Right. Nope. Nobody wants curved TVs. Uh, what about 4K? Well, maybe. What about 4K plus HDR? Okay. Now you're getting somewhere and like right. they're starting to get more upgrades. So Android phones have a similar challenge. They're trying to come up with like the mix of magical upgrades that will convince you, okay, I'm going to upgrade more than every three years or whatever. And that, more than anything, is the reason for 5G hype, is the carriers also benefit from people upgrading their phones. And so they really want to convince you that 5G is hot shit that you need. And so they are pushing... In, there's like a cabal between the carriers mm. and the Android makers and Qualcomm to try and spin up 5G into something magical that convinces you you want to upgrade. And in certain areas, on certain networks, 5G is very fast and very impressive, but it is nowhere near, I think, worth the cost premium right now. A year from now, they might build out the networks even more and might impress me and that'll be fine. But uh, if you want to buy a new phone this year, especially a new Android phone, get it because you like need a new phone or you you want the camera or whatever the other feature is. Don't get it because it has uh, 5G appended to the end of the name. And it's always, it's like everything in technology. There's always diminishing returns as the years go by. And, you know, you, you name it, it's always true. You know, yeah. CPU speeds used to be such a huge deal where if you bought a new PC 18 months after your last one, it's like, oh my God, it's yeah. like 10 times faster. And, you know, going from Edge to 3G was like turning the lights on in a dark room. It's like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. And then going from 3G to LTE wasn't quite as fantastic as pre-3G to 3G, but it was still like, wow, this LTE is seriously like might be faster than my Wi-Fi. This is really good. And it's good up, too. Mm -hmm. And sure, 5G might be better than LTE, but LTE is like really good <laughs> it's well it's like where where are the pain points of lte uh there's actually fewer than you think like streaming quality maybe yeah. could be better you know like how often are you really uploading files like the whole point of 5g is that it's going to enable you to do things that you otherwise would only do on wi-fi or uh you know on ethernet or whatever right. And I just don't think a lot of people are, like, hankering for that right now. Right, and I've seen, you know, a lot of reports that 5G might have a better story for d covering rural areas, you know, that they might mm -hmm. be able to have few, you know, with fewer towers and spread out more, get a signal so that places that still don't have a good LTE signal or any LTE signal might be able to get a 5G signal. And that is great if you live there, but by definition... It, it literally, by definition, there's not that many people because you're talking about sparsely populated areas. So it's not going to sell a lot of phones because that's not where the people are. And it's also hard to know how much of that rural uh, con connectivity story is real and how much of it is the carriers telling the FCC things yeah. that the FCC wants to hear and the FCC pretending like it's true because they're, you know, in bed with the carriers. Yeah. And how do you get people to buy it too, right? Like if you've got, if you're just a person with a bum LTE signal at your house 
and you hear 5G is great. Well, how do you prove it until you go out and spend $1,000 on a flagship phone with 5G and then take it home and see if you get a signal? I mean, you, yeah. you, I mean, you can take your phone back if you do it and you have a bad signal and, you know, you can return phones. But that, you know, I don't know. Does it, is it really going to move the phones off the shelves? I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's also just a, a like a pacing story. We're used to tech stuff happening relatively quickly. Uh, and like, you know, build outs of cellular networks take years. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of like, how, f- when do they hype it and how fast do they hype it and how early do you believe in the hype? And we're just, we're still mid cycle at best on the build out of these networks. And until we get closer to late cycle and really start to know what they enable, it's hard to buy into any of the hype. No. Uh, bonus content. I told you before we would talk about the <laughs> the lack of haptic touch on the iPhone SE, and I forgot to bring oh, it. Yeah. Even though I'm staring at a note, I wrote a note to myself <laughs> right here. It says, iPhone SE, haptic touch kerfuffle. We didn't talk yeah. about it. We could talk about that, and then, and then we'll call it a show. So here's the... So, I, can you explain ahead. it? I Because I, I'm not even sure where... Explain it. So... Uh, it's actually funny because I think you and I have actually argued about uh, I don't like the way that lock screen notifications on the yes. iPhone work in the first place. <laughs> yes. um, but in theory, you should be able to long press on a notification and have it pop up like those extra options, you know, like uh, the view or if there's like a archive option for email or whatever. And apparently uh, on the iPhone SE, uh, you, you long press and you expect to have that little haptic tap back and then have a bunch of options appear. doesn't work. Um, you need to slide it over and hit the view button to have those options pop up. Right, And it is, it's not a thing I noticed and I, I feel bad about it. I'm sorry I didn't, but it's also like, I, I, that's not how I interact with iPhone notifications, I guess. Um, and I was already sort of discombobulated by the fact that, uh, you have to touch the notification and then unlock it with the home button in the first place, yeah. uh, which is something I hadn't done for several years. Um, but yeah, I do not understand uh, why, but according to Matthew Panzerino over at TechCrunch, uh, it's not a bug. That like Apple designed it that way. Uh, that they they did not uh, want that long press to open up the the options. And I guess the reason people feel aggrieved by it is that the iPhone eight had 3D touch, and 3D touch is like the rare thing Apple has walked away from. Apple, yeah, uh, uh, you know, and you you know, you talk about like the way that Samsung will maybe throw in the 108 megapixel camera before everything is worked out, and I don't think they're going to walk away from that. I expect like the S21 or whatever the hell they call next year's phone might have the 108 megapixel sensor and not have the autofocus problems, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, on the Android side of the fence, they might try things and then walk away from them. Like, ah, didn't didn't work. Uh, Whereas Apple's not really a measure twice cut once. They're like a measure 10 times cut once company. And 3D touch is something that they've just sort of walked away from because I guess because it requires like a layer under, you know, there's some kind of sandwich there of glass, OLED, touch sensors, and et cetera. And 3D touch is one of those layers of the sandwich and they took it out and what they now call haptic touch doesn't really require physical sensors in that sandwich. It's some kind of heuristic to determine, you know, 
they they've never explained how they're doing it, yeah. but yeah. something to do with your skin expanding on the screen and faking the sense of 3D. So the iPhone 8 had 3D touch, and therefore you were able to hard press on a notification, and the SE doesn't fake it with haptic touch the way the other iPhone 11 era phones do and people are aggrieved by it. And I get it. If you have that yeah. habit, I get it that, man, you know, and you've been waiting all this time and now you've got your iPhone SE and now it feels like your notifications are busted. So I, I, yeah. I, I, I'm not making fun of anybody who's aggrieved by it. I would be too. I missed it as a reviewer because it's been so long since I used that style of iPhone on a daily basis that it didn't yeah. even register to me. I just thought that was normal. If I had to guess, I would say that there's there's probably something very inelegant about the finger gymnastics of long pressing on the thing. Oh, wait, no, I haven't unlocked it right. yet. Let me lightly touch on the home button to unlock, but not uh, touch on it so hard that I actually get out of the lock screen and then go back up to the thing and then press the thing and then have the options pop up. I think there's like the bouncing your thumb up and down until you like get the thing you want was probably such a mess that they probably just turned it off if I had to guess, but uh, I don't actually know. Yeah. And it's one of those things that I've sort of stopped thinking about, but there's like a difference in the defaults on whether they like, let's just say you send me a text message and I, I, Mm -hmm. my phone is locked and I look at it on the ones with the home button. It'll show me by default with default Apple's factory settings, it'll show me the text of your message on my home screen. And I can turn that off if I want to for privacy reasons, but by default, yep. it's there. Whereas on the iPhone 10 Face ID class iPhones, that's off by default. And it just says, yep. I think it says Dieter sent you a text message. I think it has your name, but it doesn't send you the text of the message. But because of Face ID, if you're looking at the phone, Face ID can, in most circumstances, identify you, and you don't realize that it's not showing it to you unless your face unlocks the phone. Right. Yep. And it just sort of magically opens up, and then you're able to interact with it because it's unlocked. Right. And so that it seems like the iPhone SE is sort of kind of caught in the middle where it no longer has 3D hardware, 3D touch hardware sensors, but it doesn't have face ID. So sorry. And I've gotten in trouble for saying that Apple made the right move by getting rid of 3D touch, that it really wasn't that valuable from people that deeply love 3D touch. Uh, But I don't know. It didn't take off. They didn't have the interaction models for what it does really figured out you know there's a couple of examples in the past i don't know decade of apple sort of claiming that they had interact invented a brand new hardware software interaction model that was going to be revolutionary and then it turned out to not be and like 3d touch is sort of in that camp and then the digital crown is the other thing where it's like yeah you kind of promised a little bit too much there um and so it's a bummer that they've gotten rid of 3d touch and it's a bummer that the haptic touch thing isn't working here um but I don't know. At a certain point, these things are so complex that, you know, even Apple can't magically think of every single use case. I know that they've renamed the OS for the iPad to iPad OS, but it is still iOS. And the fact that iPads, yep. even if you get the iPad Pro, you never had 3D touch. And so there was always yep. this mismatch where you can't 3D touch anything on the iPad, and yet you could on certain high-end iPhones. And I always thought it was a mistake that they made 3D touch on the iPhones do something entirely different than a long press. And so yeah. you would long press an icon if you wanted jiggle mode to rearrange it. And 
3D touch it if you wanted shortcuts and boy that was that easy to get wrong and yep. seemed very hard to explain and really sort of seems unapple like 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 two two very similar features designed by two teams that didn't know what the other was doing uh yeah that seems <laughs> that seems like a reasonable conjecture for what happened there and you know <laughs> so i i yeah i I, I'm okay with getting rid of it, but I feel like it was a lost opportunity where if they had done it right, it might have been awesome. But they never really yeah. did it right, so they might as well have gotten rid of it. Yep. All right, Dieter. Thank you so much. I always yeah, enjoy always enjoy talking to you. Um, everybody, of course, can read all of your fine work at, at The Verge. And then on Twitter, I, I never remember anybody's Twitter handles. What's your Twitter handle? It's a Backlon, B-A-C-K-L-O-N. B-A-C-K-L-O-N. You're a joy on Twitter as well. I'll see you there. I do my best. All right. Uh, thanks. <laughs>